Hey everyone, welcome to the World Lab Podcast. I'm James Marshall and this episode is purely brought to you by Pure Sport CBD. Head over to waterlab.com to find out how you can get 20% off that great product. But anyway, let's crack into this one. This is the most excited I've been to have a guest on today because today's guest not only was one of my favourite players growing up, he also became one of my favourite players to play with and is without a doubt one of the greatest lads in world rugby. It is the great Conrad Smith. Welcome, Snakey. Oh, what a welcome. What a welcome it is. Yeah, pleasure to be here. I've been fortunate to listen to a few episodes, so now I'm, uh, I'm a part of it, even better. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm stoked. I was going through your journey again a little bit last night, and what a journey you've had. What a career. <laughs> yeah, a little bit different than most, but um, yeah, it's, I've enjoyed it. Still going as well. It's not, it's not over, eh? Obviously, on the field it's over, but... Uh, <laughs> I was yeah. thinking maybe a comeback was coming. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, well, the way I've seen Ma running around in, uh, in France, he's been beating my, beating my club twice in the last few months. So, yeah. Oh, the necky, the necky could probably do with a um, 13 too. <laughs> no, I've, I've received that. I've only been back a few months, but I have a lot of... Uh, I take it as a compliment that I'm obviously still in all right shape, that they, they, some people just genuinely think I'm still playing. A lot of old people are like, oh, yeah, you're still playing. For, no, I'm retired. I retired three years ago. You are in good shape, though. Oh, a bit of cycling. I took him to, uh, I was living right in a popular cycling spot in France, so when I, oh, I retired, I did a bit of running and then jumped on the bike, and, um, yeah, it's been... Uh, been a good good little hobby. Nice. So what is what are you up to at the moment? I've got lots of questions about this. What is the what is the great snake up to? Right, so well I'm obviously back in New Zealand. I, when I finished playing, well I had the two and a half seasons with the club I joined in France and then joined their staff and um, did a few different roles. I did I tried a bit of coaching um, my first season and then up until a few months ago I was the director of formation. So I ran the academy there. In that role, I really enjoyed. I'd sort of, um, I think, found something um, that you know I was pretty motivated about helping the, the younger players at, at, at the club where we were in France. And yeah, and I'd still be there and doing that um, if it wasn't for the intervention of COVID. But um, when that all came along this year, we sort of battled it out like everyone, hoping that it would uh, pass by. But the longer it went. Um, yeah, family and I asked the club to, to head back to New Zealand and fortunately I was able to pick up work with the international rugby players so that's work I'd been doing uh, very part time um, after I stopped playing so they're based out of Dublin and yeah, and, and I've just picked up more work with them so I've come back to New Zealand and able to work three to four they've offered me even full time work since they just work over uh, over Zoom like most businesses do now and yeah that's that's keeping me busy back back here in New Plymouth and working from home and um yeah have you found the transition from playing to the other side Uh, obviously you're you're the sort of man who was never going to have an issue with finding work but have you found the actual life it's tough like I think and I suppose being involved in player associations, you, you do a lot of work and you talk to a lot of retired players and so you're very aware of all the challenges around it and everyone you talk to, like, no one does it easy. Like even even the ones, you know, you sort of referred to me or, or I've talked to people that I think, oh, you know, you just went straight into another career, 
you know, how, how did you do it? But they'll, every, every retired player will say it takes, it's two or three years where you're just, you know, ideally it, it's not like you're, um, really struggling or anything, but it, it's just not the same. You know, you're never going to mm. find a career or a passion that suits you as, as much as rugby or, or gets you out of bed as quickly as, um, a rugby career does. So, you know, I, I, I suppose I knew that going in and, and so I suppose I just lowered expectations around, um, in terms of a career, I, I wasn't, you know, I didn't want to be a coaching the a top 14 team straight away. I actually, you know, looked forward to spending more time with the family, um, and started very much part time and, and that, that has suited me. And now it's been almost three years and, um, the work I'm doing now, well, the work I was doing with the club, I enjoyed it. And now, you know, it's a couple of months into f- sort of close to full time with the Players Association and I really enjoy this stuff as well. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's getting better. So what do you actually do with the Players Association? So we're, so internationally, so we do the issues. Obviously, we work with World Rugby on a day to day basis. So we're, um, doing a lot of, you know, so for them, they organize World Cups. They do sevens, women's rugby. Um, all, all those sorts of things at the moment, the global calendar is big on their agenda. And so we're the, the player, um, representative. So they'll come to us or usually the case we're going to them, challenging them on whether it's rules of the game, um, or potential calendars or international windows or tournaments, World Cup or sevens. There's a lot of work going on with the sevens, obviously around the Olympics. And so we our job is to, is to talk. Um, with players around the world and, and make sure we, you know, uh, a voice representing them and to just to make sure that all these things that World Rugby are, are organising have, you know, the players' uh, views at, at their, um, at the forefront. And yeah, it's a, it's a cool job. It's got a lot of challenges, but, um, it feels like we're making a bit of headway. World Rugby seem to be talking to us and giving us a, a lot more, um, time for, for our views, which is, which is always good. You'd have some good views, no doubt. Rugby's in good hands. <laughs> oh, I don't know if I'd say that. No, it's it's one thing you realise how lucky we are in New Zealand, um, and so that's really my background, right? So I, I, the whole time I was playing in New Zealand, I was with the New Zealand Players Association, and you know it's it's such a good relationship that the Players Association in New Zealand have with the NZRU, and you realise how you know, useful that is and how much that is really a reason that you, you see the performance of, of teams right through New Zealand, whether it's the All Blacks or Age Group or the women's game. Um, it, I think a big part of that is the, the involvement of players and, and all the decision-making. And, and, that, and that doesn't mean it's a, a friendly relationship at, at times. Um, and you're seeing this even at the moment. There's, there's uh, differing views between players and the administrators, but I, I think that's good as long as... There's a possibility there for, for that argument or if it is an argument or a discussion to take place because that just doesn't happen in other countries and I think, um, you know, they miss out on it. Yeah, fair enough. And another thing is you're, you've gone right off the radar, obviously. You've never had social media and things like that. Is there any reason behind your lack of social media or <laughs> um, being being able to be reached by the public and your fans? Um, no, I, honestly, I think... You know, obviously I played through a time when, when I started it didn't exist. And then yeah. I suppose when it all came about, I was already someone that wasn't um, hugely comfortable with um, 
media presence. Like, you know, I, I was happy to speak to media and, and I saw it as part of the job, but it wasn't why I played the game. You know, I, I loved rugby and I was happy to um, do my bit in terms of media appearances and even sponsorship appearances, but it wasn't something I looked for. You know, I, I didn't go out and seek extra endorsements or anything like that, you know, even yeah. though the opportunities did present themselves, I was always... So for me, social media was a bit like that, and I and I was a bit surprised, and I think I still am, the, the amount of players that do take to it. Like, I have absolutely no issue with the guys that do. Um, and, you know, that, that's... But I, I don't think it's for everyone, and I see the, the harm, you know, if you can call it that, or the, the damage or the pressure that it puts on a lot of guys. And I just, yeah. I think the majority of them, like, they've made the decision because at the moment you, you just think it's that you have to, that everyone does it. Mm. So you sort of, but that's it suits your personality or it doesn't. And I just think there's a lot, a lot of people, and this probably extends beyond rugby, um, that they don't need to be on social media. Like, you don't have to be on social media. You can exist. Yeah. Life does yeah. go on without it. Like, I'm, I'm fine without it. Like, the odd thing I miss out on, and I'm like, ah, oh, did that really happen? Yeah. You know, people will say to me, where have you been? What did you didn't know about this. I was like, oh. But, I mean, that would happen once a month, I think. And normally what I have missed out on isn't that really that important. It's, uh... yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so that, that was always my view and sort of nothing's really changed that. I mean, I, I realise, um, like I said before, there's a lot of potential opportunities I've, I've missed out on by not being on social media, but like I say, if that's what I need to do to my viewers, then if it's a sponsored opportunity or, or some other work that I need to have social media, then that probably means it's not for me. So, uh, yeah, yeah that, that, that's, that's really been my view. Oh, so there'll be no dancing videos of you on TikTok coming out anytime soon. <laughs> well, obviously my kids are still young, so we're going to get to a stage where, you know, my kids are, like I say, they might well join it, and I won't stop them joining it, but for me, like a parent, sometimes you have to join these things just to know what's going on. I don't want to be oblivious, so uh, you never know. One day, might be, hopefully it won't be for another 10 years, but... I might pop up somewhere. Well, that's interesting, Wano. Have you got an age where you think it's appropriate for your kids to have social media? <laughs> wow, this is getting into okay. No, I don't. I don't. And I'm, uh, I think, like most parents, you, you sort of talk about this while they're young and you don't have, you just sort of prefer not to talk about it because you know it's going to come and you don't know what you're going to do but um yeah I, I don't I don't think you can have any set age in mind but it's the same with phones right like I don't know at yeah. some stage it's going to we're going to see the the usefulness of my son having a phone so when he finishes school or if he's going to a friend's you know there's obviously a great benefit to these things but uh yeah, the dangers or the risks that come with it. Yeah, I just, I just push that to one side at the moment. Fair enough, me too. Anyway, part of the podcast that I love doing is going back right to the start, hearing how um, every, all the guests grew up. And so, what was it like for Baby Snake? Uh, no, it was good. I was, you know, had a great family who I'm still very close with. Um, so I was born in Hawara. But I didn't last long there. My father was a policeman, so he then he moved us, or well, he was moved up to New Plymouth, and the family went there, and that's where we've sort of 
my parents are still there and we've um we grew up there went to some good schools that i you know most of my friends are still the friends i've friendships i formed during um school and and that was uh, that was me a couple of older brothers i played a lot of sport with sport was obviously uh yeah it was a big part of my life all the way through my dad was pretty handy he played the Taranaki and I had an uncle who was an all black and a great uncle who was an all black so rugby was you know it was a big part but in saying that it wasn't uh we weren't pressured in any way like we were pretty um oh, just our, our family was pretty relaxed the schools I went to they weren't big rugby schools and yeah and then I sort of left to, to study went down to Wellington and um and that's that's sort of on a rugby front where things took over but early life was just cool it was just a like I say a, a great Great close family and a mum who uh, spent a lot of time for the kids and only sort of worked later in life when we were still all sort of older. And um, but yeah, so that that uh, that's always had a big impact on me. I think your your family and the way you brought up. By all accounts, you were a pretty good fast bowler too. Yeah, I, I played a lot more cricket than rugby at school. Um, probably on account of my size, I wasn't very. Uh, not quite big enough. I had to play halfback at school right up to first well, yeah. But um, yeah, yeah, number nine. Um, box kicking was not my strength. Uh, <laughs> or right to left passing, I could imagine. <laughs> no, at that time it wasn't. I, I was one of those halfbacks that just always would turn around or run. Or, or run from the left-hand ruck. I was just running to the... <laughs> but uh, cricket, cricket was, um, yeah... Representative-wise was was where I played a lot, and I actually broke down as cricketers do with our fast bowlers. So I still got a stress fracture in my back that, if I have a backyard session that goes a little bit too long, and I go and I get a little bit too competitive, I still wake up in the morning and worse than any rugby injury after 16 years of whatever it was professional rugby, a few years as a young fast bowler and left me with a worse injury. But no, that was uh, that sort of put pay to the cricket, and oh, I always loved rugby a little bit more. You know, I think I'm just personality suited rugby. So cricket, even though it was advancing far, I don't think I would have lasted long. Just yeah, you know, the, they're pretty special cricketers. They uh, it's an individual team sport, whereas I always loved the the, the camaraderie and, and, and rugby a little bit more. Yeah. So then talk to me about your study and then how did you make um, the Wellington Lions? Because obviously you were, you were still pretty young, but you had a pretty unorthodox way to getting in there, didn't you? Yeah, I just uh, I went to Wellington to, to study. Um, still wasn't playing rugby. I, I applied for a, uh, the academy then, which had only just started, but I missed out. Um, I didn't play any representative rugby at uh, under 19 level so I was just a full-time student and then it was my second year yeah down down at university in Wellington that I um I, I made the premier so I was playing for old boys university and I made the premier side and it was really growth like I was saying before I'd been so small up until then but I'd started at the end of high school I shot up and I my box kicking got even worse because I was so <laughs> I was so tall, and my passing, even right to left, was so bad because I I was having to reach down. You know, that's why you don't see many tall halfbacks. And it was uh, so I was, and admittedly, I I didn't I I wanted to be out in the the, the midfield, and um, so I started playing at 
12, I started, yeah, my first year as a 13 was only um, second year at university, and I was put out there, and um, yeah, and as I say, things, it was a really good, it was a really good club, and I think, you know, what I learnt, I think, throughout my career is if I was in a good team, I was someone that looked good, you know, whereas other players, they can be in a rubbish team, but if they're a good player, they'll stand out, but if if I'm yeah. not in a good team, no one's going to notice the centre that's running <laughs> around, you know. But uh, but we, we our, our club was um, amazing in that, and with Super Rugby that time, um, a lot of them would come back and play half the club season. And we'd have we had a backline of Spice, um, Tanavili for a while, uh, Paul Steinmetz, uh, Shannon Paku. Oh. We had a couple other, yeah, and they'd all come back, and so there I was with just slot in, and um, yeah, had had a great couple of years, and then so suddenly I was, um, it was, I hadn't even trialed for the Wellington Colts that year, but because I'd had a reasonable season in the club, so we had made the, I think the finals that year of the club competition, um, and so I was sort of asked to come join the Wellington Colts, and sort of made. So I played the back end of that season with the Colts and then sort of from, from there, I was still studying um, and but managed to get to my last year at university of my degree. It was my fourth year and got, got, a, got a phone call then to come in and join the, the Wellington Lions um, because their midfielders, Tanu Munger and Ma'anonu, had gone off to the World Cup. So all about timing. I uh, They were a bit short. There was a couple of injuries and... Yeah, I got called into the called into the Lions. Had a couple of games. We made the final. So again, you start to look good. You get noticed. You know, the team was playing well, and um, yeah, you know, I was that end of that year. I was in the Hurricane. So it, from from uh, not even playing Wellington under 19s, I was then in the Hurricanes, and then played my first All Black game yeah. <laughs> at the end of uh, 2003. So from 2001 to 2003 was. Uh, yeah, it all it all happened pretty fast. That's crazy. Yeah, and, and did you break your leg somewhere in between there as well? No, it was just after that. I had um, just after. thanks for bring, bringing that up. Just as I was feeling <laughs> good about my, no, no, that was uh, what was that? That was two thousand and six. So I'd actually um, I played my t- yeah, sorry, my test debut was oh four, and then I'd had oh five. The Lions came. I was still you know I was picked with the Neil Blacks, but and I was told you know because Tana had had hinted to the coaches that he wasn't going to be playing for much longer and I was selected to be groomed and to take, you know, over from him. So I didn't play a lot of tests in 05 and then, um, but yeah, and then he retired in 2005. So 06 was meant to be my big year and I broke my leg in the the second, what was the first game of Super Rugby that year back in New Plymouth. So some see it as some sort of... uh, some sort of curse because I'd left Taranaki as a young boy and this is my first my first game back at Rugby Park since going and playing for Wellington. Uh, yeah, snapped my leg pretty well and that sort of took me out for the next six months. And how was that to deal with? Yeah, it was tough. Like, it was good in that, well, I think, you know, the fact that it happened when I was, it was early in my career and so you're still very motivated. I'd only just had a taste of the All Blacks. So I was... You know, there was never a doubt in my mind I was going to get myself back and, um, you know, it just still had heaps to prove. I'd still only played a handful of games even for the Hurricanes. So, yeah, it was – and you you heal quicker, right, when you're young. And so 
it all went pretty well. I was I was sort of ahead of sort of the schedule in terms of my um, when I was coming back. I was sort of healed pretty quickly. The, the surgeons like it was a bad break, but very clean um, in terms of it was just right across the bone. So they were able to pin the tibia and, and it healed um, really well, and uh, that 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 obviously helped in the the recovery. But yeah, certainly it was. I think most players will tell you the toughest time of your career is those those injuries, particularly those big ones, just because you're you're all alone. Like any, you go through rough patches with a team, whether you're losing games or whatnot. You're still experiencing it as a team, and you sort of you feed off that, and you, you can come together and you get through it and you have a, still can have a bit of a laugh, but man, the, the loneliness of an injury and I'd been lucky up until then, you know, like, and that's when you don't want the injuries when you're trying to, you know, make teams. Like I was fortunate by the time I'd broken my leg, ever, you know, at least I'd, I'd played for the All Blacks and things. So I wasn't, it wasn't about losing um, my position in the team. It was, uh, but yeah, it's just a very lonely battle and you're just, uh, there's a lot of moments where you like, I still remember when I first started running and then you just think, man, this is, how am I ever going to sprint? You know, I can barely run. And then yeah. my, even my first, I started back playing club rugby back for OBU. And God, I reckon I would have been one of the worst players on the park. <laughs> and here you are, you've got these, these ideas that you're going to get back to being an all black. And you're like, man, this, this club team shouldn't even pick me for next week. <laughs> That's how bad I was. And, but yeah, oh, okay. you just you just have good people around you that support you, and and that's what I was lucky enough to have. And yeah, so then you look back on it and think it was just a hiccup. But at the time, it's yeah, it's tough. You talked about your All Black debut against Italy. What was that mm. like? How how were the nerves? I know I remember yeah, your try it was, it was an unbelievable try. But talk me through the <laughs> whole experience. Yeah, it was it was amazing. Like you know, it happened so quick. The fact you know, in the same year, I was just joined the Hurricanes and then by the end of it I was playing for the All Blacks which was probably a good thing and I'd again we'd made the NPC as it was then NPC final um, and so we'd we'd lost to Canterbury a very good Canterbury side but then you, the team was selected I think the two days later then we were assembled then we were flying to Italy and then bang I was playing the first game of the tour and it was probably a good thing because it happened so fast that I didn't even really, you know, it didn't sink yeah. in that it was, that all this stuff was happening. And, um, so yeah, you just sort of, and I was, you know, I had Tana there playing alongside me and we had been fortunate enough to play with a little bit by then. So those sort of things, like still, don't get me wrong, barely slept the whole week, all that. But, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was just, oh, it was a great, you know, I look back, I, it was just an awesome experience. Yeah, it goes so fast, which most um, guys will say about their first game for the All Blacks. Um, but yeah, and, and in a funny way, it meant a lot more because I had I had my two older brothers who I said were very, I was very close with. They were living in London at the time, and because my selection and, and that happened in such a short window, they hadn't booked tickets or flights um, up until the team was named. And by that stage, like it was sold out. There were no flights to get from London because all these Kiwis, are, you know, want to get to the game. Yeah. So as I'm going to, but I'm they're obviously trying like hell, and my brother 
Because my brother, you know, he has lots of issues with administrative problems. And he realises <laughs> his passport was ex- had expired as well at this time. So that that all just added to it. So as I'm going to the game, I don't even know if my brothers are going to be there. Like that's how sort of late it was yeah. getting. And then it turns out they, I walk off the field and, and there they are. They'd come down and, and that was pretty awesome. Um, you know, I hadn't seen the old brother I hadn't seen for about three years and because we didn't have a Zoom. There wasn't Zoom or Skype back then. There was uh, yeah. a few, few phone calls, but, uh, no, that, that was, that was real cool. And so that made it even more special because I got to have the aftermath. My parents, you know, they didn't have time to organize everything to get over. Um, they were the same. They didn't want to book flights to Rome, even though they thought I might get selected, but, um, they didn't want to jinx it. So they couldn't be there, but my, my two bros were there and yeah, it was, it was an awesome day. That's cool. And you obviously went well enough to keep your spot for a very long time, all the way up yeah. until the 2007 World Cup. Do you want to talk to me about that experience? The, the, the World Cup, it was, yeah. I say this, that that is the best all-black team I've, I've ever been in, in terms of a squad. Like Really? And that's crazy that everyone you know, looks back, as they should, you know, we got knocked out in the quarterfinals, so it was a failure. But, man, and people forget, like, those, the couple of years before that when, we were changing our team every week and winning by 30, 40. It was an incredible group of players. I remember the, the team was selected. Each week there would be oh, well over two, 300 caps sitting on the bench, or not even on the bench. You know, I remember in yeah. that game we had Anton Oliver, Ruben Thorne, Doug Howlett, Aaron Major. Um, these guys couldn't even make the 23, like 22. And it was a, yeah, amazing group of players. Um, amazing coaching staff who all went on to do great things and but you know we got we had a bad day and and that's the beauty of the knockout tournaments but yeah it was uh and the world cup itself like my real first real taste of france it was an amazing amazing tournament and yeah. i can look back on it now and, and say that because at the time you know and for the next four or five years you because of the result yeah it sort of shadows everything right but now yeah. I, I just still some of my greatest memories like off field just the welcome and the the everything that happened during that world cup it was it was pretty special um time what did you learn from that um world cup you think oh yeah a, a lot and 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 i think that's you know why i say like that coaching group like the decision to keep them as hard as that would have been um because of the result was was you know, set us up, and most guys that were involved through that would say the same thing. Uh, we we took a lot of lessons just around you know not taking it for granted, and and the fact that we were travelling so well in that World Cup, but we weren't focused really just on winning games, and and that's that you know failure shaped our approach for the next two World Cups easily. You know mm. that the whole idea of what had happened in the build-up to World Cups irrelevant, and you just had to win three knockout games. Like, that's a World Cup, that's all it is. And, yeah. you know, the last World Cup where we didn't make it, just reaffirmed that, you know, um, these tournaments, they are just tournaments. They are t- entirely different. And up until then, I think, as an all-black group, we had, had this amazing success as a, you know, every season um, and throughout our history, you know, of winning multiple games but when you get to a tournament it's totally different and you got to expect teams to play differently referees get influenced by pressure we get influenced by pressure and it's totally different than any other test and so you can't just rely on the experience you've had 
And even if you're tracking well and, and leading up to a World Cup, this is, you know, this is something entirely new. And that's what tripped us up at Cardiff and it tripped us, the All Blacks, up at the last five World Cups. So yeah. I just think that was the one thing. And we, were, we, we took him from, from there on in um, based on that experience. So then going to the 2011 World Cup at home, masses, masses amounts of pressure. How did you, how did you guys handle that one? Uh, well, pretty well up until the final, you'd say. <laughs> Look, I, it was a great, you know, campaign. And, and we, like I said, we'd done so much work around, um, just the mental side of the game and dealing with that pressure. Um, and, and I, and I think, you know, we, we still enjoyed it, like, cause it could have easily been a World Cup because like you say, the pressure was, um, immense, but, we we didn't try to hide from it. Like we based ourselves in the middle of Auckland City. We let guys go out, enjoy it. We involved ourselves as much as we could in all the stuff that was happening, and and it was great. And I, I just think we it, it was still you know a real it was a tough tournament, um, wearing all that pressure. But I, I think we were still performing really really well. And then that we we got to a final, and I've I still haven't watched it properly, but. Um, I know by that stage we were just all about dealing with things we couldn't expect. You know, like I was saying before, whether it was going to be referee decisions or opposition playing out of their skin, and and that's what happened in the final. What I look back on is France being France playing even mm. a style of play that they'd never shown before, and with the intensity that they hadn't shown, losing to Tonga and and losing to us by thirty points in the first game of the tournament. Like it was just yeah. a it was a really difficult game to get ourselves up for and never mind, you know, the injuries that we were facing and, and the fact that we were looking back really on our last legs. We'd been so, you know, that semi-final against Australia was one of the two or three best games I'd played in um, in my whole career. So, but I think that was because we were, <laughs> we were expecting to play Australia in the final and, and that building up to that World Cup, they were a team that had beaten us obviously a couple of times and, um, we we spent a lot of emotional energy in that game, I think. And but hey, we 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 got through a final where, and we had said there will be games, and it happens every World Cup. The teams that win, there will be games that you don't play your best, but you still got to find a way to win. And um, yeah, that that happened in that final. Did you feel the pressure while you're out on the field, or is it more building up to it? Because like my experience, I never played at the All Black level, but I always felt the real pressure leading up to the game. But as soon as on the field, I was sweet. Was yeah. it? Is the World Cup the same, or is it? You're still feeling it while you're out there. No, it, it, it's the same. Like you, ideally, yeah. That that's um, that's something you feel Monday to Friday, eh? And then and then. Yeah. By the time the game, I mean, sure, if it's, if it's too big and, and it can creep into like your subconscious and then it can sort of cloud your judgment, um, and, and cloud your performance on, on the field. And so that's when the pressure can, um, have an effect. But yeah, like normally by the game time, certainly in terms of the, the crowd and things like that, most guys are able to, well, you have to, you know, you don't really get to that level if you can't shut that out and, um, perform. But, who, who knows? Like, there's still an impact that it does have subconsciously, and and um, and that's what you know. I suppose we've talked about in the past that that pressure of like not even though it wasn't a home World Cup, but in 07, and that that pressure of having not won a World Cup for so long because that was definitely a factor. Um, yeah. 
and it was again, obviously, in 2011. But yeah, you know, just the, the fact of talking about it, I, I think, is always the best. Like, as soon as you just be straight up and say, "Look, this is an issue. What, how are we going to deal with it?" And then you know, then you just turn it on its head, and suddenly you try to use it as something to motivate you, and, and that's. By the time of game time, you're trying to use that pressure to motivate you, and that's uh, generally the best way to deal with it. Like that. And then obviously the uh, following World Cup, 2015, you'd won the previous World Cup. So was the pressure a lot less? Did you feel like there's a little bit of weight off your shoulders? Yeah, a little bit. And I suppose, like, because that's what a lot of people, I, I suppose, thought and feel. But I think even after 2011, we were quick to keep putting pressure on ourselves to perform because I think we yeah. felt... Like All Blacks obviously hadn't won World Cups up until then, but the reason we were still considered the best team in the world was like every test match for an All Black, even if it's not a World Cup final, we want to win. And and it, I know f- for me, it was slightly annoying that so many people, and they still do, put, play such reliance on the World Cup as, as defining you as a good team, whereas yeah. you know, for 20 years, All Blacks didn't win a World Cup, but we were still... You know, you ask most people that we were considered the team yeah. to beat in the world. So we wanted that just because we won a World Cup, now's the time to prove we really are by just continuing that. That's why that, for me, that period was really important. And we only performed so well because we put a lot of pressure on ourselves. And 15, it was the same. We, we just, we had a group of guys, obviously, that were all leaving and we just really wanted to win. So I just think the pressure on ourselves, like, like you say, there was no doubt there was the external pressure wasn't the same, but internally, I think we wanted to win that one almost even, you know, even more just to make a statement, you know, before obviously a few of us left, but also just to cap off that sort of four years that we'd had since the last one, um, where we'd had a, had a good amount of success and been a pretty, you know, strong group. Yeah. Well, my memory of that 015 team was that it was the most stacked all black team. In probably history, but you got you saying that 07 team would beat them, aren't you? Well, I, I just and, and again that, that's but that's me like as a player because in 07 everyone was you know oh, I was I looking up to all these guys, whereas I'm one of the old guys. Now, so I can't now say you're that the guy. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you know, it, it was just for me in 07. Like there was, and I, but I still would say that taken as a squad, like a 30 man squad. I don't know, you, you could do the stats, but I'm sure there'd be more caps in that team in 07, yeah. and there'd be more all-black wins, and there'd be probably more super titles. I don't know, but it was just, it just felt like an incredible team because, yeah, leading into that, a lot of guys had come back. It was just a different, whereas there was a, a lot of youth, but oh, no doubt that, I mean, the 15 team that, you know, we went through that World Cup, it was, it was incredible, the, the talent in that side, and, um, yeah, other people will will say, look, we won a World Cup. The, the team in 07 got knocked out in the quarters, so <laughs> there's never going to be a debate as to who's the best <laughs> team. But uh, I, I I just think it's interesting when you look at the actual squad. I don't think there'd yeah. be much between them. Yeah, but it was obviously a fairy tale way to finish your international rugby career, going out with another World Cup, apart from one little moment which still breaks me. And I want to know the reason behind it. The early final sub. What the heck happened? Injured, surely. Well, no, you have to ask Steve Hansen and, uh, and Ian Foster. No, they, look, up, up until then, you know, they'd talked to us about being a, a three, you know, with Sonny playing so well, um, the three of us, you know, he, he had changed us in and out 
all, all the games and he said, look, it's just going to be, he's, it'll be my hunch as the way the game progresses. If he, if he felt like a team was ready to break, he liked the idea of Sonny coming on. Um, if it was tight as in the, the, the week before and felt, you know, there was qualities that I'd bring to a game, then Ma would get exited and Sonny would be brought on. And, and then there was still the option to bring Sonny on to start. So, um, you know, they, they were open and honest with us. It, I mean, it irked me too, mate. Don't get me wrong. It was probably the best 40 minutes. <laughs> I'm normally a slow starter to a test match, mate. I, I think it's the best 40 minutes I've ever played. And, yeah, um, yeah I, I won't repeat what I told Stephen when he told me I was coming off at half time. It was, uh, but look, man, he, you can't question him. And, and now, and even after, like I'll, I'll joke with, uh, Steve about it now. Cause, um, <laughs> yeah, but that's the way he coaches, you know, and, and he says it himself. He's a punter. He, he loves his horses. And, and that was the way he sort of coached sometimes. And he just felt that Sonny was going to do something. And look, they did. They sort of broke the game open, the two of them. So yeah, it was, uh, it was a little bit strange because I'd never been subbed off ever after 40 minutes and here it was in the yeah. World Cup final, but you, you soon learn to bury those personal <laughs> things and soak up, you know. Could have been a lot worse. I mean, there was mates afterwards, you know, I sat down next to Wood, Tony Woodcock, you know, and he'd pulled his hammy and missed the back part of that tournament and, you know, he's played a lot more tests than me and, uh, so, you know, that, that's just footy, eh? And you just have to yeah. find, Get, get get over those things. So what were you like on the bench? <laughs> what, during that last half? <laughs> yeah. No, I, I was still, man, I was into it to, to when I sat next to Gilbert Anoka who was on the mic and, um, you know, I kept, I kept involved as much as I could be and, and uh, you know, I, I was worried, especially the way the game sort of did pan out and, and part of me was thinking, you know, especially when Ben got, Sinbin, if you remember, he, Ben Smith got Sinbind and I think that's when even Steve would say you'd want me back on the field because uh, yeah. I think we lacked a little bit in work rate and obviously we were down a man. Um, so that was, if we'd lost from there, mate, I wouldn't be talking to you. I think I'd still be hiding <laughs> out somewhere. And, uh, but again, that was just for the team. So I was, uh, but look, the guys got home and so, you know, we didn't need to go down that path. <laughs> and how were the celebrations yeah they, they were good they were probably like I was saying um, you know like the World Cups are, they are tough like that's the longest year ever together um, yeah. in your career and as a camp and like we said before the pressure and even though we weren't in New Zealand um, <clears throat> there was still a lot of pressure from there was a lot of <clears throat> Kiwis over there following and supporting you. We were, it was awesome, the support um, coming across from New Zealand as well. Uh, so you're, it's, you're pretty tired. Like, you always think it's going to be this huge party. But, um, you know, look, you celebrate. But most of you, like, I just remember more so in 2011. Um, and, again, that might have just been the pressure. But I just remember having a couple of days you do with the parades and things like that. But then just wanted to go home and sleep. Like I, I think I, yeah. <laughs> I was just at home for like four or five days after the, the, <laughs> the New Zealand World Cup. And the English, obviously being in England, it sort of extended because we had a couple of days in London and then come back and do the parades in New Zealand. So, uh, yeah. But at that stage, I knew I was done. So I think I allowed myself to uh, enjoy <laughs> it a little bit more. <laughs> oh, good times. 
And one part of your career that we haven't even touched on yet and probably my favourite part of your career, you are a hurricane legend, absolute legend, the greatest hurricane of all time. How how is that career? Any standouts for you? Uh, for sure, I, I think. <clears throat> even like alongside the great things you know I experienced with the All Blacks, I think um, 2012 with the Hurricanes is always... Um, I don't know, probably my most enjoyable season. Um, and for those, a lot of people sort of forget it, and I think that's why I enjoy it even more. But, you know, we had been, in 2011, lost a lot of key players. Um, so, I, you know, I was elevated to captain. We were a side under a huge amount of pressure. We weren't expected to win a game. We had been absolutely slated in every piece of media Um you know, for the coming season, and Hammett was under Mark was under massive amount of pressures. Um, obviously, with Mar and Andrew leaving, which he had a part to do with, but then on the back of that, Namir and Pity and Jose, and um, there'd be three or four. I, I'm I'm forgetting that all, that all left, and so I, I was nervous. Eh? I I spent that whole summer just thinking how how we're going to get through this, and and I, I mean, I was there was no question of me not. You know, I was going to stay. Whatever happened, I loved the team. I'd grown up loving the team, so it was. You know, all my thoughts were: was how can we get the best out of this, and how how can I help all the young guys that had come in to to be proud of being a Hurricane, and um, you know, and sort of let the supporters who were there was a lot of disappointed supporters how to bring them back and um, get behind us, and then but by the end we were playing in front of a packed house. We beat the Chiefs, who went on to win it that year in our final game because we still had a chance to make the semis. Um, and no one would have given us like that, even that alone, the fact that we had a chance to make the semis go into the last week and then still beat the Chiefs to keep our chances alive. Like, uh, that, that's, I mean, that, that's why it's my favourite memory. And um, I've managed to play through it all and see some young TJ Perinara and Bodie Barrett and Jimmy Marshall come to the fore and uh, yeah it was it was a it was a great year it's still like I say my favorite one of my favorite times and one of the my favorite memories I was watching obviously but you scored the absolute one of my favorite tries 80 something <laughs> minutes against the blues talk me through that against one the blues yeah well it was uh, it was a, you know again the blues were highly favored that year and we went up Eden Park, oh, there's something special about that place. I've easily played my best rugby at Eden Park. I'd like to say I'm still Westpac or whatever it's called now. Wellington Stadium's my, my favourite to go to, but something about Eden Park brought something out of me. And, and you know, there we were and with a sniff of winning that um, right, right at the end and Bodie makes a break and I run it in. And uh, it, it just, oh. I don't know, it was something about that year was... We had a bit of luck, don't get me wrong, but uh, we were beating all these Kiwi teams, and uh, that's what I just love so much. So it was uh, it was a lot of passion. Obviously, it came out in the way I, I used to celebrate sometimes, but <laughs> <laughs> it was only passionate because there was a lot of hurt that had gone on along, you know, before that. I run it in. That's the most humble answer to your try. Oh, you showed speed, <laughs> fitness, got under the Mate, post. It was, made... it was the 80th minute. If ever I'm going to win a sprint, it's going to be the 80th minute. <laughs> if it was in the first, I'd be looking for a winger straight away. <laughs> 
And you talked about being uh, becoming captain. How did you feel with that responsibility? Uh, yeah, I loved like by the end, I loved it. It, it, it motivated me. I think you look at a lot of other All Blacks, and look, we, we talk about this, but when you're playing a lot of tests, Super Rugby, you'd never say it's a, it's a chore, but it can challenge a lot of guys. I don't think that's anything too um, controversial, me saying that. But for me, playing for the Hurricanes and then having that captaincy in my last four seasons, I, I loved it, and I never even... It, it was never one or the other, you know. There was, there was never... Obviously, the All Blacks, it was... It was an added motivation, but playing for the Hurricanes uh, it was it was huge for me. And um, being captain was was something I, I loved and kept that motivation right to the end. Uh, I I was a reluctant leader in terms of you know, and I'm just like that naturally. You know, my first four years probably with the team, I hardly said a word, and you know, and so it sort of took a bit of prompting before being made captain, but. Um, you know, and even with the All Black leadership group, like I was very almost reluctant to to take that sort of responsibility. But some people are like that, and you just need to push. And then after that, I you know I loved it, and it uh, it was something um, yeah that I looked back on and, and made it particularly enjoyable um, while while I was captain and able to uh, to help out all the younger guys. And a massive help you were. And then one moment that comes up a lot throughout this podcast is a big moment in a lot of Hurricanes career, the 2015 final. Talk me through your experience of that big final. Yeah, it was, uh, it was tough. It was probably the toughest loss to deal with um, I had. I'll, I will say, though, like, you know, looking back on it now, it was um, – and I suppose I even within four or five months, like it was a, uh, and like we've talked about before, like finals footy, it's fine lines, like fine margins. And I look back at that game, and yeah, it could have easily gone the other way. Like I, I don't regret the way, you know. There, there were some things we could have done differently a little bit with our approach, um, but we played. You know, all I was worried about going into that final was that we might have gone into our shells. If anything, we did the absolute opposite, and we because and to be fair to us, that sort of done so well for us. You know, we'd finished top of the ladder by just playing. We were running back kickoffs the majority of the time. We were attacking teams, um, always thinking attacking, and it was what I loved. I, and it brought the best out in us, and that's how we were winning. So, um, I I think in hindsight, we needed just to taper down on that a little bit because the Highlanders. <laughs> They threw everything back, you know, and, and it would just yeah. turn into this rather entertaining, almost unfinal-like game. Um, and look, and then and then it just comes down to a couple of key moments and even calls that go against you, like any, like what happens in sport. In the same way, I talk about the the 2011 World Cup, you know, against France, and that's a game we could have lost. Like we, we talk all the time now about, oh, you know, we're a great team and we're prepared so well. The fact of the matter is, like, you know, they had a kick, a penalty kick with, what was it, 10 minutes to win. That had gone over. History's totally different, you know. And yeah. as much as you like to say, oh, it's because of our preparation, I don't think you can always say that. And um, so we could have lost that game, but we could have easily won that final. I honestly think that if we played it 10 times, I still think we would probably win it six or seven times. Um, but, you know, that those those things happen and, 
for me, it, it hurt, but it made <clears throat> the team winning the final the following year completely gave me so much closure. And I've told a lot of the boys this, but I don't even know if they believe me because they'd always apologise and say, oh, we should have won it the year before. We should have won it. <laughs> but honestly, I, I watched that game in Spain as bizarrely as it was, I was obviously in France where I went up the holiday, watched the guys win that. And I don't know if I've ever felt so good about a game I wasn't even involved in, but it was, and it lasted for like weeks. I just had this glow on me, like, and I realize now, like, it was that, that weight of, I think, losing that final because, you know, my motive, like, I don't have, I've sort of said this, like, personally, I'll, I don't, the fact that I was involved with the game is no big deal. And like, if I was injured and I miss a game, as long as the team wins. And so for me, like my last four years, particularly as captain with the Hurricanes, I just wanted us to be respected, you know, and I just wanted us to be seen as a great team. And the easiest way to do that is to win the, to win the thing. So when we lost, you know, I knew we'd still had a great year, but like, if, if, if it was still today and the Hurricanes hadn't won a title, I, I'd be still, I'd probably be in tears talking about that game. <laughs> but the fact that we won and you won, like, the following year, like, mate, I was just, look, that's what I wanted. Like, we got our title. We'd, and even better, we'd had two years where we were the top dogs and suddenly people were talking about the Hurricanes as a, as an elite performer. And, and that was my goal, not about winning titles necessarily, but, mm. and it wasn't anything about personal, about me being there, or it was just seeing the team, um, have that respect again. So it was a proud moment for the old dog sitting in San Sebastian. <laughs> Did you see that win coming? Obviously, the, the squad lost a lot of leaders, you, Ma'a. And a, a few others, but did you think yeah. the following year they was gonna they were still gonna be able to do that? Yeah, I did, and I remember e- even during the season, I remember talking to to Boydie and Plums about. I, I suppose you you realise like there's a huge value in in the leaders you have, but it's also that that next tier, and so that's why I didn't see a problem because you know there was yourself, there was Bodie, there was TJ, guys in crucial positions, Colsey, um, Shields, like all these guys that were coming in. And I even knew during that season, they were already doing a lot of the leadership. Like there was myself, obviously, Ma, Thrushy, these guys that were all going. But I, I, I just, and I, you know, we discussed a lot. And I even talked to Boydie during the season, the following season. And I, and I just said, you know, this is exactly what I wanted, or what I ex- almost expected to see happen. Um, and even not just that year, but for the two or three following. And um, yeah, I, and I would have been gutted if we went backwards because, again, like that, that's your whole – my whole motivation was to create a good club, not to have a one-off season, you know. Like if we had yeah. won that year and then ended up last, I think I would have been more gutted than what ended up happening, us losing the final but then winning it next year because that's – yeah. That's what you want to do as a captain, you know. Like you don't want it just to be about you. You want it to be a, a great club around you, so – um, and it's the same with the All Blacks. Like, I know, talking with Richie and Dan and that, like, we all left in 15, 16, the guys played even better. And it was, yeah. and that's, that's awesome. Like, you don't want to see them drop off a cliff. Everyone would say, oh, that, that's because you guys left. And so it might feel that, you know, yeah. that, that's not the way most guys work. You know, most guys, you're like, yeah. you're proud of the team, you're proud of the All Blacks. You just want to see them. Um, go even better and, and see these guys step into the roles that you've left. 
That's so true. Such wise words. And one thing that happened uh, at the end of 2015, after we'd lost the final, I remember um, everyone was pretty upset, but at 3.30 or something a.m. in the morning, you challenged <laughs> TJ Perinara to a um, yo-yo on, <laughs> on Courtney Place. I had the courage and everything. <laughs> Have you beaten yeah, him before? Keep going. Eh? I've beaten him every time. And he was giving me luck. And so I said, here's your chance, buddy. And he, I think he even named the time. And then where was he? At three, he, was, he was nowhere to be found. So no I, won by, I won by default and remain, remain undefeated. Well, I think he's still telling people that he won that one. He must have been hammered. <laughs> he was back in bed, I tell you that much. <laughs> well, that cracked me up that there was a whole build-up of <laughs> talking about this yo-yo, just constant trash talk. <laughs> uh, I would have loved to see that happen because it would have happened if he was there. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if we would have set any records, but geez, it would have been entertaining. You would. You wouldn't have lost many yo-yos throughout your career, though. No, no, it was something I uh, prided myself on. I. I, I, I think I've said to you before, anyone that's seen me in the gym knows that I need <laughs> other places on the, within the uh, training to, to excel because my form in the gym is pretty much horrific. And so that was it. I, was, I knew I was going to be the worst, you know, and all the other testing, the, the bench and your weighted chins or your squats. So I was like, right, I've got to win this to give myself some respect here and make sure <laughs> – and, and this started from when I was, you know, first in the team. Because at that yeah. time, you're like, if they see my gym stats, they're going to wonder what I'm doing there. So at least if I win the fitness, then they're like, oh, okay. He, he give him another contract. He can stay. He's not. He's not a complete waste of time. But yeah, what was so, your best? Yeah, yeah. I was just talking to Davy Gray about that. It was what would be. Geez, I want to forget it now. You were there. We were. You was you, me, and Bodie right to the end. Was that your best you, one? You beat me by yeah. one. Yeah, yeah I, I beat gutted. you by one. But then there's the, they got a young halfback that blew it out of the water this year. Has he? What did he get? Yeah, he got 20, whatever. We we were like 21, 4 or 5. He's done like 23, 1. He went like a whole level. 23. Maybe even two above. Yeah. <laughs> what? He weighs about, he weighs about 72 kilos. <laughs> I feel bad. I, don't, I can't remember his name, but. Yeah, that's that's always the bitter response, eh? Oh, he weighs nothing. <laughs> it has to be. I can't, I can't just take it. <laughs> but yeah. oh, oh, how good! Good times at the Hurricanes, and then obviously you went over to France. So talk me through that move. What 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 was the reasoning behind that move? Um, look, I, I was I was spent for lack of another word. It was um, like we just started a family, which was a huge factor. Um, so the time away, just with, you know, Super Rugby as it was then, with the trips to South Africa and Australia, and then being involved, you know, heavily with the All Blacks, you know, and, and all the time away, it was, you know, three, in a World Cup year, it was four months, and it, it was just sapping my enjoyment. And I never wanted, uh, you know, when you talk about playing for the All Blacks, I never, ever wanted to feel... Like I didn't want to be there or even a part of me not, you know, missing home because then, you know, if that's going to affect your performance and you want to be giving you all for your country and it's, uh, 
I, I suppose it started in 2014 and, and then I just knew by 15 it was, uh, and it wasn't, I mean, obviously the World Cup was, the timing was, was good, but it wasn't really even that. Like if there'd been a, if that was in the middle of World Cup, so I still would have gone then. Yeah. And so then it was just a matter of when I knew I didn't want to play All Blacks, it was, whether I stayed playing for the Hurricanes and not the All Blacks, uh, which I, I thought about for a while. But it was, again, I, I just didn't know how that would work. And obviously I'd talked to Tana because he'd done that and um, he was pretty good in telling me that it's a, it's in its own way it's a bit of a battle. Um, and so I, I, I looked overseas, which I hadn't done at all in my career, and um, I it was going to be a family decision and I talked to Lee, my wife, and we liked the idea of a language. So it was pretty much, I told an agent we needed to be in France or Italy. <laughs> I wanted a Kiwi coach or someone that I could trust and that they weren't going to tune me out every week because I was obviously 34 by then. And, and, um, and it needed to be like, I didn't, we didn't want to go to Paris or, you know, a big city. We were obviously Wellington. We were both from New Plymouth. So, and I thought that would be an impossible challenge. And then within a week, the agent came back and Simon Mannix, Kiwi, who I'd met before from Wellington, and he coached a small French club who weren't in the top 14, but were confident of being promoted. And, and it was just too good. And I didn't, you know, so I didn't shop around. I just said, look, that's, I talked to Simon and, and it just made sense so that we could finish rugby and, and then just go and, it was really just a lifestyle decision, just go live in France and yeah. um, play rugby while I could. If the rugby, if I didn't enjoy the rugby, I would have just retired, but we still wanted to live overseas and um, I would have picked grapes or done whatever. <laughs> How good is that? You've just basically written your own contract and just got it a week later. <laughs> what a big time. That's awesome. <laughs> no, well, it was just, uh, it was just, yeah, good. It was funny just the way it worked. It literally was just like that. And Simon, he flew to see me. And then, um, so, but I, so I signed the contract. They were still in Prodi Dur. So, I mean, I don't know how that would have gone down. He was really confident for that they were going to play in the top 14, but I, I was going to them regardless. And, um, so yeah, that's what I mean. I, I wasn't interested in, I didn't have rugby aspirations in Europe. So I didn't, and I just mean that by, like, I didn't want to, go win the top 14 or go play in the European Cups. And yeah. I'd had whatever it was, 10, 11 years in the All Blacks. So that was more than I ever thought I'd play. So, you know, I, but I really like the idea of, of helping a club in France and more spend, you know, you just have so much time with your family over there. And and I'd always wanted to speak a language. And, yeah, so that, that, was, that was the motivation in the end. How was your French? Yeah, it's not bad. I um, it took it was the toughest thing I have ever done. I'll easily say that I spent two, three seasons as a player and never got. I, and looking back, I was developing, but it's a personality thing, speaking languages as well. And I, like I sort of said before, I, I don't confidently just start spitting off like some people do, and they <laughs> excel really quickly. I was the complete opposite. I didn't speak for two or three years, and then. It was only I started obviously coaching and coaching you're expected to speak in French and that was the best thing for me because it just, I, I wasn't great to start with but it forced me to speak and I'd obviously done a lot of work. I just, I loved doing the lessons and everything and and sort of now I'm, look, I'm, I'm not fluent but uh, 
I'm I'm rugby fluent. I put it that way. I can speak rugby <laughs> French and hold a conversation, but yeah, I, I can't uh, speak French politics or uh, go into too many other subjects without grappling, looking for Google Translate or. Yeah. Oh, that's good, Savin. Is it true that you only were playing home games? That's a yard that was real. I, <laughs> admittedly, admittedly, I'll clear this up. When I arrived, I was obviously on the back of the, a long Super Rugby World Cup, so I got over there in December. And the way that, that season turned out, the, the club, all they wanted to do was survive. We'd got out and the, the bottom two get relegated. And I played maybe the first four or five games. The club did really well. And then we were in a position where we couldn't make the playoffs. And we couldn't get yeah. relegated. So from that point on, it is true that I only played the home <laughs> games. <laughs> but the following season, it was, it was normal, but I was just tarnished with that because that was like my first three months and everyone saw this and, oh, Victor, all the French were, oh, you only play the home games. How do I get that contract? <laughs> uh. oh, classic. But they put a massive emphasis on their home games over there, eh? Is that something you try to change or that's just something that they they do? Yeah, interesting. I I did and because I know I was uh my I think it was only my second game, we actually went down and so a few like myself, Colin Slade, we ended up with a few more, but that, early on there was a few of us and we went down and won in Montpellier. And at that time, like, I've never seen scenes like this in the changing room because it had like we had won the top 14. And, <laughs> and I, like, it was a great win. I knew Montpellier were a good team, but the fact that we had won at Montpellier was just, and it was only like sometime after the game that someone said, like, we'd done that in the 50s or something, you know, like it just hadn't, just doesn't yeah. happen. Um, and so, and I remember sort of from then on sort of saying to the guys, you know, like, there's no reason that can't happen again. Like, you know, it's not a way home and away, but it's funny how it changes you. Like by the end, you, you just understand the passion that comes with a home game in terms of the support. Like it's, that that's why, like the support is amazing at these home fixtures, like the crowds yeah. and it's a day of entertainment. Like they are there from two hours before kickoff and the whole community, like it's, it's their event and it's, there's, business going on and they're out there around the outside and it's a family atmosphere and it's just all so if you were to come and as an away team when you are like spoiling the party and it's um yeah. and, and and i think that sort of almost inf- influences the psyche of, of teams but uh no I, I i try to change it but you know what's changed it the most is covid because this year um away teams are obviously with no crowds yeah. It's it's just uh, and they've already set records for the amount of away wins in the in the top fourteen. There's still ten rounds to go, and I actually think post COVID, like surely teams are going to realise like it's actually just a crowd, you know, like it's. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But they they influence referee decisions. There is no doubt about that, and and I'm not blaming referees for that because these crowds are that hostile. If I was refereeing, <laughs> I, I'd be I'd be turning decisions as well because they are. The noise they can produce and the stadiums are so close. Uh, oh, I almost agree with them sometimes. And I see the calls blatantly wrong against me, but I'm like, yeah, mate, I, I can understand. I, I wouldn't make that call either. Uh, How does New Zealand replicate that? Oh, I, I don't know. 
And, and it's not to say that, you know, the New Zealand, like New Zealand rugby is amazing, like the, the product I'm talking about, like what we play. And, um, yeah. and, and you're talking about your population base, right? Like it's, it's just not mm. the same. These, you know, these are all in big cities, you know, where they get the crowds and, and they don't have the same amount of rugby. And, um, so like that, that's going to be hard to replicate. I, I think there is a lot of work that can be done just around, the, the package of rugby rather than just being a going to watch a game like I think you can involve the families the communities a little bit more and but I know there's lots of people looking at that and it's uh and it's just always going to be a, a cultural challenge I think so I don't know I, ca- I can't give you a straightforward answer I'd, l- I'd love to know it because I, I think it there's j- obviously there's just as much passion in New Zealand it's just um mm. comes out in different ways well, you're in the right job to change it. Looking forward to seeing, <laughs> <laughs> looking forward to seeing your work in action. <laughs> anyway, one thing I wanted to talk about before we get to the questions is your charity. Is it so they can? Do you want to talk about yeah. that and how you got into that? I um, that I, I met Cass, who was the founder, just by chance in Wellington, and she had just started the charity. So this is yeah, it's a charity that's set up. Um, in Australia and New Zealand, but to support the communities in, in Kenya. And like, you know, when you get to the All Black in a, in a position where, you know, you, you can influence people over things like this, she she was keen. But, but you get approached a lot, all right? That's what I'm trying to say about different charities, yeah. different things to the support. And But she was really passionate and it, was, it appealed to me because it was very small. It related to her. She had personally been over to the, into the community and, and seen what they needed and her motivation was all about schooling and education because if you just keep throwing money at these communities then it's just a it's too big a problem but if you can actually put it towards education and let them actually find their own solutions you know it, it makes sense right and so that sort of appealed to me and, and I just sort of said like I'd love to actually if I was going to support a charity I'd be involved you know I didn't just want to be a spokesman without seeing what they did and Mm-hmm. And then she sort of like called me out on it and said, well, go on then. Here, here's a, this is where they are, this is what they do. And, and at that stage, um, my wife and I were planning a trip and we were thinking about going through Africa. So that sort of started. And then so I, I, we went there and we spent a week in, um, in Kenya in uh, a little hut that had no power and water. And we it was part of a three-month trip. This was after the 11 World Cup, actually. And yeah. it was eye-opening and the first two days I think if you'd offered us a chance to leave we probably would have taken it but yeah. by the end it was um and still is like it was the best part of that whole trip and so we had a week there and we we saw that these so by this stage they just started the school the um charity so set up a school and they had volunteers they only had two classrooms and the, the plan was they would help the school um, become self-sufficient and if they did that they'd build another classroom so it was the whole idea of them helping themselves not just um, an out, uh, western charity giving them money and yeah. and now it's so what's that 10 years ago it's now a full school it's got another one it's got a teacher's college because <clears throat> they realised part of the challenge you need good teachers as well and it's just gone further and further and we went back again um, two years after we now have kids, so it's actually really hard because there's a lot of um, immunisations and things to get there. So I've sort of felt bad that I've, I haven't um, been able to be involved as much in the last few years. But uh, but they're still doing great things. And, yeah, I try and help out where I can, which is, um, has been a bit of a challenge in France. But now that I'm back, I'm um, yeah, getting involved again and, 
and seeing them uh, keep doing the good work they do. That's good stuff. How was it seeing those kids and stuff over there living those sort of lifestyles? Yeah, it was, it was just like it was yeah eye opening, and and we didn't have kids at the time, so even, it, I think it's because we talk to our kids all the time about it now, right? Like we when they ask for another toy or something, I love just yeah. saying, do you know, you know, and I've, we've got the photos that we say, look, this is what these these kids played with, and or if they yeah. complain about their meal, you know, oh, we want something different for breakfast, and I'm like, I've got these photos, I'm like, you know, these beans, this is their school <laughs> lunch, they had the same lunch every day, and they would, and this was something the charity provided, so this was a meal they wouldn't otherwise have, and they were so happy, these kids, they would come up, politely take their bowl of which honestly you'd, you'd offer this to a kiwi kid no one they wouldn't eat it but they would yeah. take it away it was the highlight of their day most of them hadn't had breakfast before they arrived and they'd eat that and then you know every day would be the same and but you know I, so i'm no teacher so but i we wanted to help out at the class so we had a rugby ball and most of them didn't know rugby either but yeah. the, oh, the enjoyment like kids are kids it's the coolest part they, they're living in tents or, and they don't have anything. They don't get fed well, but they are the happiest kids. And it's, uh, it's, it's so awesome. It's, yeah, pretty inspiring. You still, this was 10 years ago. I still remember it so well. All they wanted me to do, I just kicked high balls up and they would just be, <laughs> honestly, we could do it for an hour. Box I was kicks. trying to change the game. Yeah, the, my, my box kick was that. They didn't know I was a rubbish kicker. <laughs> and, but they, I was trying to change the game to relays, but no, they just wanted to see this rugby all go up and they'd all circle around, try and catch it. But yeah, then you just do simple things and, man, it, it's just, isn't it like, you know, where they're living and the, the conditions they're in for, for children, it's just amazing. They, they don't know any different and mm-hmm. um, they're just so motivated as well. So, yeah, it's pretty easy when you see that. It's like, man, you just, to, to, just to give them an education and let them try and um, work out a way to, to you know, help themselves would be uh, mm-hmm. such a such a cool goal. So it was always easy to, you know, Whenever Cass would ring and ask for me to do something or to try and you know help out to fundraise somehow, it was always easy to say yes. Mm, it put life into perspective, eh? That those experiences, just seeing yeah. how people live. Yeah, and we can't wait to take our kids because I, I just think you know for yeah, like it was yeah. amazing for us that to take you know even my son. Like I say, it's one thing to show them photos, but I just know it'd be such a experience to see what their schools are like like even yeah. it's a it's a great school but by new zealand standards it's it's you know it wouldn't be a school it would be uh yeah but and that's what that's what they live with and, and uh like i say and that's what they're happy with and, and then it's actually improvement on what they've had so for a few run you know when you see that can't help but um yeah, you know, it gives you more than you're giving them in a strange way. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you're giving them aid, but you actually, when you go over there, you actually take away just as much just by, you know, seeing what they, how they live and, and um, how they still find happiness. And it's uh, mm. it's pretty amazing. How can any Waterlad listeners um, get behind that or donate to that? Um, yeah, they're constantly, um, obviously there's a, there's a few different ways. Um, you've put me on the spot here, but they, uh, <laughs> no, you, you can, you can sponsor the, the classrooms. You can, they're actually at the moment, a lot of people are, t- are trying to, uh, fundraise and you, and you can sponsor. I'm actually trying to cycle 500 kilometers this month, um, to support the, uh, the women in the, in the communities who are, 
put up to some, um, they have pretty nasty living uh, standards without going too much into it. And so there's a whole host of ambassadors that uh, have given themselves challenges and are uh, trying to get sponsorship. So you can even sponsor me if you really, really want. But uh, There we go. That's, that's probably that's the, the perfect goal. situation to get started. Well, send me a link and I'll, I'll post it because I know you're not on social media, so it's going to be hard <laughs> for you to... Money. I know, I know. I'll, I'll be laying the chain, so that'll be good. Only my family's donated to my cause, so uh, I, ne- I need to I need to spread the word a bit wider. <laughs> Fair enough. So, well, as always, we've gone to our Instagram for some questions, and oh, when you get one of the greatest players of all time to come on, the questions come rolling in. Uh, when did Snakey realise he was one half of one of the world's greatest centre partnerships? <sighs> Good question. Um, I, I get asked about it a bit. I think Matt, I would say the same that, like, we started both like competing for the same spot. So it wasn't like, uh, we were, uh, a well world partnership from the get go. We were, uh, you know, mm. uh, we got on well, but we're obviously different backgrounds and we were, like I say, competitors. And, and I think actually that part of it's, um, just the fact that we're, individually motivated sort of you know got us halfway to where where we ended up because we both wanted to play um it took us a long time um you know he he was in and out of the all black side sort of as a utility and then a you know winger a center 12 um i had you know injury issues and uh leading up to really after 2007 because 2008 was the first time even though we'd been together for four or five years that we um, played together in the midfield and but I think from then on and it was really you know the coaching staff at the All Blacks Graham Wayne and uh, Steve that made us you know realize that there was value in working together like up until then and all through you, you work on yourself and you make yourself the best you can be but you also you know, if we were going to keep playing in the midfield, we need to understand each other better. And from then on, you know, it, it was uh, it was work, and we, you know, it benefited us most uh, both massively. And uh, yeah, it was it was by the end it was a very good friendship. That you know, he's the one guy I still probably talk to more than anyone else that I played with. So uh, great guy, and, and obviously we had good good fun together on the footy field. No doubt. Were you faster than him? This was another question. Someone sent a video to back back it up. You scoring a try, I think it was against France or something, off a grubber. Do you remember that yes, one? Fiji at Carisbrook. I'll remember it well. Oh, Fiji. There we go. <laughs> I think he just used to score more tries than me. He actually gave me that one. But no, I, I would have to have I would have to have the running race extend to about seven hundred or eight hundred meters before I think <laughs> that I would beat him over race. <laughs> Yeah. Fair enough. Okay, tell us about your fifteen-three FDMC oh. win over the New Plymouth Boys High at the Gully in nineteen ninety-nine and the celebrations. Yeah, it was it was pretty special. It was uh, my first you know, go back. So we had never beaten New Plymouth Boys High, Jimmy. Just to give you a bit of background, and um, yeah, and now well, we were a school only forty years old by that stage. And you were at nine. I was uh, at nine. Yep, for that game. I had a yep. bit of a busted shoulder, but I strapped it up, and uh, 
And yeah, it wasn't. I've actually still got a video of that game. I watched it a few years ago. It wasn't the most entertaining, but uh, we we were we were a very good first fifteen. We had been uh, together for like a bunch of us, like right through playing together. And you know, I I wasn't one of the uh, wasn't one of the best players, but there were a couple others that were very good that were sort of playing. Northern regions as it was back then, so the Taranaki and then yeah. even um, getting close to New Zealand sort of age group teams. And boys, I to be fair to them, we're a bit of a younger team with the Jimmy Gopeth playing for them. Um, still a good team. Oh wow! But yeah, we we had been still going. Yeah, we had been motivated for like since we started high school to be the ones to beat Boys High. So that was uh, it was a massive massive achievement. And, uh, yeah, three, three tries to zero, all unconverted. We had a number eight kicking our goals, who I'm still friends <laughs> with, Brendan Hart. So I'm going to love including him on this podcast. He was zero. He also attempted two penalties that he missed. <laughs> so the 15, two tries to our captain, John Whittington, who's an amazing, amazing player. And, uh, I don't know who scored the other one, but yeah, remember it very, very well. But it wasn't much of a, I mean, oh. it was a Wednesday game. So, I think we just had a few drinks. We were all obviously underage, so it wasn't too much of a uh, celebration. I think we would have waited for a house party or something like that on the following the following weekend. You would have been deadly at a house party. <laughs> Mate, I wasn't up to much at that age, to be honest. So, uh, I, I, I hadn't heard the I hadn't learnt the Uwalela or the value of uh, <laughs> the value of three thirty um, yo yo. So, yeah, I was I was pretty quiet. I was pretty quiet. <laughs> oh, that's good stuff. Okay, this is a good question. If you could partner with another international twelve in the midfield, who would you go? Oh, John de Villiers. Just because he's a oh. top, top, like, oh, obviously amazing player, but, um, yeah, really good guy. Get on really well with even now. And, um, and, but, and when we played <laughs> South Africa and New Zealand, obviously, you know, he's huge rivalry, but he, he was one guy, even during a game, him and I, we obviously had a similar mentality in, in terms of being competitive, but, uh, still didn't take it too seriously. So we'd, We'd uh, have good fun, you know, even playing against each other, and um, and yeah, and I just loved his style of play and um, what he did. So yeah, he'd, he'd be uh, my choice. What a lad! Okay, what did you do when you had a sabbatical instead of going on the end of year tour? Yeah, that was when when I uh, I travelled. Um, so my wife and I headed off uh, and just travelled for three months. So that's so I'd done that after the World Cup and. Um, so it was that 2011, but as it was then, because after World Cups you get a quite a um, good off season, and I had asked at that time just to miss the first two weeks of pre-season with the Hurricanes, just because I just really wanted to travel. It was something I was desperate to do since I was, you know, at university, and I like rugby was sort of taking that option away. It was sort of, you know, I was loving obviously being a rugby player, but I loved travelling and I wanted to do it, you know, while I was still young and um, we had had a great, you know, three months after that World Cup and I felt it was something that energised me for that 2012 season. So when I re-signed with New Zealand Rugby, I just asked that if I could do that again and um, I'd miss an India tour and the payments and stuff that go with that. But I just uh, felt it was 
key to sort of prolong my career and, and then build into the next World Cup. So they were happy to, to allow it. So, yeah, my wife and I, we just planned another trip and went sort of a few different places, uh, a few similar places, saw friends in Europe, and, and that was uh, that was it, and back to the charity on the on the way home and went to a wedding with friends of ours on the way. So it was just uh, it was a good, yeah, it was awesome. It was a great break. Was that when you went trekking with um, the Silverback Gorillas, or when was yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, that was on the second trip. We, uh, well, both times, like, when we went through Africa, we'd visit the charity, and then we went to the Serengeti, did the whole, uh, that, that experience with the, the lions and the zebras and all that, and then, yeah, what, what the other trip, we went into Uganda and, and trekked into the rainforest and uh, spent, a, spent a few hours with the Silverback Gorillas, so... Yeah, mate, I, I love all that stuff and, um, you know, my wife does too. So it was something we were yeah. fortunate enough to get, you know, to build that in. So we got to experience that, those sorts of things that you wouldn't otherwise do in a, in a two or three week off season <laughs> that you normally have. <laughs> okay. As an intellect, do you have any ambitions to go back to varsity and study again? I, I thought about that, uh, you know, when I talked before that I was going to finish with the All Blacks. I um I actually yeah was quite close to looking to go back to Cambridge um and doing a masters there and and you know because that would be, give us a you know chance to live overseas um but yeah it, it just didn't motivate me hugely I didn't really know what I would study and um and yeah that, I mean that whole Cambridge experience would have been pretty cool but uh, I just didn't know for a family it wouldn't wouldn't be quite the same as living in the, the south of France. So uh, that, that, that's why that never sort of eventuated. Now I'm probably a little bit past it. So, uh, yeah, well, it was close for a while. Okay. What do you put down to being at the top of your game for so long? Um, I, I just, you know, I, I think most, I think it's not just in rugby, but your personality and more than anything, just a... Uh, your attention to detail and, and your competitiveness, I, I know that's um, probably probably the things that keep you motivated. Like you just never, I was never relaxed as a as an all blacks. I talk to friends about this because they talk about how it must have been just great being an all black for so long. And but I, I can honestly say there was never a a time when I ever felt comfortable um, in my position. Like you always pushing yourself to be better and feeling like you had to be better or else there was going to be someone that took your spot or else, you know, you, you weren't going to perform the way you wanted to perform for the team. And, and that's great, right? Like that, that's why the team does so well. And um, that's the sort of culture you, you need. Uh, but, you know, I, I think that's what sort of drives guys to stay, to stay on top of the game. You, you just never complacent. You never relaxed, which isn't, it's actually when you retire, it's quite nice to be relaxed. Um, <laughs> but, uh, it, it's certainly, it's certainly what, what you need to, to have, you know, to, to stay at that level. Oh, good answer. Okay. What is your best memory as the OBU Billy Goat? <laughs> oh, oh, a lot, a lot. To be fair, it would be the social side, which, um, don't know if I should say, but I love being a student then, meeting meeting that club. I didn't know what club, so I was down to Wellington. Obviously, wanted to play rugby. Didn't really know what club, but the logical thing was to play for the varsity. And um, yeah, met great bunch of guys. Obviously, you know, 
guys I mentioned before were great rugby players, some super players, and um, like Spicy and Paku. But just uh, the attitude towards rugby in that in that team was just so good in terms of uh, you know students. We play some, we played great rugby. We we enjoyed ourselves off the field, but and we, you know, we're we're friends. And I caught up with Spicy just two days ago. He's still a good mate, and uh, it, it was just good, good fun. And, and that's what you know. Maybe I don't know. At the moment, there's a lot of talk about the community game and and people not playing rugby as long as they should, or and not motivated to play for their clubs, but. For me, man, I, got, I didn't need to play for the Hurricanes or the. At then, I would have. I was going to turn up every week just to play club rugby, just because it was fun. It was. Uh, it was yeah. all about winning, but we. It was a social group that. You know, we were my best bunch of mates. You know, outside of like I had my uni crew, but this is with my um, the rugby club, and it was what provided a, a lot of fun. And um, yes, I, I just. I just think for me that there was never a question of that I would stop playing rugby because I had such a good team that I was playing with. How good. Okay. Is it true your mum made you cut your hair before your All Black debut? <laughs> no, I don't think there was much truth to that. I think uh, that, that, that would have been my own decision. I don't know. I don't know. I, <laughs> I had some outrageous hairdo, so I think anyone that would have seen my... <laughs> The range of haircuts would know my mum didn't have uh, much say in the hairdo I was rolling around with. Okay, next question. Who's the best centre in the world at the moment? Oh. Oh. Um, Jesus, who do I say here? Well, I get asked about... I'm a Jack, I'm a Jack Goodyear fan in New Zealand. I think he's a brilliant player and I um, think he should start 13 but I won't get any uh, more controversial than that uh, outside of that um, around the traps Slade's pretty handy in England um, Jonathan Davies when he's fit and playing for Wales he, even you know I was playing him he's he, he would be he would be the best at the moment just you know as experienced as he is yeah. um, and as good as he is he's He's an outstanding player, and he's had a lot of injuries in the, you know recent years. But he is—he's class. Good stuff. Okay, this one. This one might be controversial for some listeners, but who was fitter, you or Richie McCaw? <laughs> running fitness. Running, running yeah. fitness. Well, I said again the value of weight. McCaw was carrying another you know ten or so <laughs> kilos on me, so he. Um, he could run all day, but in a fitness test, I would, I would, I would beat him. As as would a couple other backs as well. He he would always win in the forwards. Though. He was the fittest forward. But uh, if you're judging fitness just by those sort of numbers, then I've got him. What about a coast to coast or something? <laughs> yeah, well, at the moment he'd be uh, he'd be in his own element. <laughs> and, um, uh, well, I'm trying to hold down a bit more of a job than him to have the time to do those sorts of things, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, he's, he's one guy who was never on social media who who jumped ship, wasn't he? He was, and we had a lot of fun talking about this because this was a, this was in his last year of playing, and he had had a lot of advice around the uh, the opportunities that would present themselves if he went onto social media, and because he obviously uh, had enjoyed it, you know, being a player, you get plenty of exposure. But they sort of said to him, "You need to uh, get on the social media." gimmick and um so he jumped ship and he always said he wouldn't so yeah <laughs> i was the only one i was the only one by the Even end that the was great hold- oh yeah i was holding strong 
<laughs> oh, that's good. Okay, how many fluoro tracksuits do you own? <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> is this your question? I own one. This is bright. This is Steffi. <laughs> I own one bright yellow fluoro. It's not even mine. It was part. I don't know where. I'm, it was a. Fa- it was a family tracksuit. I don't even know where it is, but it's it's had a lot of use. <laughs> a lot of use. Very popular at the end of season. Um, <laughs> What do we call an end of season cup of tea? It's uh, had a lot of use. <laughs> okay, this question came up a lot, but I thought the answer would have already been out there. How did you get the nickname Snakey? <laughs> it, it was. It's a very. It's not much of a story. I need to make something up better. But it was. It was just. A, it was a cricket coach actually. Back to talking about my cricket, and uh, I, I was. I was. Uh, I enjoyed fielding. I kept myself active. I, obviously, cricket can be quite a. Um, challenging game when you're a long time in the field so I, I provided plenty of voice and I was just I'd chase down anything and one coach thought I looked like a snake the way I moved around in the field and it was actually laughed at you know like as a stupid nickname but often that's yeah. why how these got things stuck and that yeah. was it. I read something. I was reading something yesterday, and it said that it was because you used to slither through tackles and things yeah. like this. I was like, oh. well, that's why some people like they don't know the reason, so they just make up their own. Yeah. No. Do people still call you Snakey, or yeah. is that sort of gone with the rugby? No, it's everywhere. It, it just creeps in. Is it? Because one person, so I'll start work at, with the international players, and you you'll start talking to a couple of ex players, and they'll. They would have known me by snake, like you know, Brian Habana's on a couple yeah. of committees with me, and he starts calling me Snake, and then he was like, "What?" And then so it just follows me everywhere. I do, I do try to shake it. My my wife is dead keen on me to shake it, but I think it's I think it's with me for life. And it's, at least it's a good nickname. Okay, last question. One piece of advice you would give a young Conrad Smith. Oh. I think we've talked about it a bit before. You just you got to be motivated by enjoyment. You know, I, I think it doesn't whether it's rugby or whatever your sport or whatever you do. You know, you just got to uh, if you're trying to do it to make teams or build your social media account or build your bank balance, then you you won't get through the you know the injuries and the tough times. But if you just love love what you do, if you love playing rugby, I, you know that for me was always a thing then you can sort of ride out those times and then uh and it gets you out of bed more than any of those other things will so that's that's always uh my advice just enjoy what you do enjoy enjoy the challenges as much as the as the accolades and and uh you can have a have a good time oh i knew you'd come up with some great advice (laughs) some of the best we've had so far what a career, what a journey, what a lad, Conrad Smith. Thanks for coming on and giving up your time. Obviously, like I said, you're one of my favourite players growing up, one of my favourite players to play with, and I honestly don't think I would have had the hurricane career that I did if you weren't there. Um, I owe a lot to you. You were a massive influence on me during my time at the hurricane, so I just want to thank you for that, and thanks for coming on the What a Lad show. Too easy, Jimmy. You're doing, you're doing a good job. You're making, showing the fun out of rugby. I, I like it. It should be... Uh... More shows like you. We don't need a we don't need to break down tactics too much when you're playing rugby. It's a bit of fun, eh? I like it. Yeah, hundred percent. Hey, appreciate it. Thanks, mate. All right, no problem. Just quickly, I have an offer from Pure Sport CBD, which is worth hanging around for. This stuff is a game changer. If you play professionally, then it's a no-brainer. But if you don't, 
it's still incredibly valuable for anyone with sore muscles or sore joints or you're just struggling with sleep. You will have the deepest sleep ever on this stuff. And it's all fully certified, so there's no risk in taking it. All you have to do is put in Waterlad20 into the promo code at checkout or head over to waterlad.com for more information.